Morning, New Hope family. Glad that you're here. If you uh, have a Bible with you, or maybe have it with you electronically, would you go to uh, Luke chapter 14? We'll be picking up in one of the parables again this morning. If you're watching at home, maybe you've already downloaded the notes. You're especially going to want those. And um, this week, the, the notes are also printed off there in the back of the auditorium. If you didn't get one yet, be sure to pick one up. I wonder if it ever makes you uncomfortable with the way that Jesus speaks to people when you're reading stories in the New Testament. Does it ever make you a little squirmish, maybe, maybe give you the willies a little bit when you see how harsh he can be in some of his communication? Like, I personally have never stood in a social circle of individuals and said to individuals, you're the children of Satan, right? Can you imagine doing that? And, and it causes you to step back and say, wow, it's so harsh, but yet he seems so comfortable doing it. And, and you wonder how he gets to the place where he's willing to say those kind of things, and yet you know he's saying it in love. I've come to this conclusion as I study the life of Christ and look at the way that he communicates with people. I've come to the conclusion that he does this because he's invested He's invested in the lives of the people he's speaking to. He's not just denouncing people or speaking down to people like you've got to shape up your life without first demonstrating to them love. And because they knew that he was expressing love, many times they received it well. There, there's a specific group that didn't receive it well. We're going to look at that this morning in Luke 14 when he's talking to the Pharisees and the scribes. They didn't like anything that he had to communicate, but frankly, that's the reason that Jesus did the acts of mercy that he did. That's why he did the miracles that he did. That's why he fed people the way that he did. He expressed the love first so that he could speak directly to them. I want to pray with you about that as we step into Luke 14, that God would give us the eyes to see how that would apply to our life and how we would use that in the social circles that we're in. Would you join me in that? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for every person who's part of this service right now, those who are joining us from their home or maybe from a campsite on vacation, and those who are in person here in the auditorium, that every single life is precious to you. And for each of us, you, you want to speak to us. We know that you have your word, and your word is meant to communicate, and you want to communicate to us the things that you want us to know about you and your expectations of us. So we pray right now that you would help us to know Jesus better as a result of having been part of this this morning, and we would be content with that. So we would ask that you would speak in that way. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Having a meal together is supposed to build relationships, and you might remember pre-COVID when you could go out to dinner with friends, and, and the purpose of going to dinner together or having a meal together is, is meant to build bonds and really establish relationship. But it's very tough to eat with someone that you don't like. It's hard to sit across the table from somebody that you don't have a good relationship with, or maybe it's damaged. Dave Ramsey is a financial counselor, and he's very famous for saying, it's really tough to eat turkey at your grandma's house when you owe her money, right? It's, turkey tastes different on Thanksgiving Day if you're in debt to your grandma, you borrowed money from her. Well, if you've got a damaged relationship, 
or you've harmed it in some way where there's a breach between you and the individual, it's hard to sit across the table from those kind of people and have a meal that tastes good. But that's exactly the setting you find Jesus in. It's a beautiful story. It's a fascinating story. And when Jesus comes to dinner at the home of a Pharisee in this story, he's going to use the opportunity to identify who will and who won't be eating in God's eternal banquet table. And one day in eternity, we're told that God's going to have a heavenly feast for everybody that's there. Now, the opening scene focuses on an individual who needs to be healed. He comes with a disease. And Jesus' action is really disruptive to the environment that they're in. It it upsets the norms for a dinner setting, but at the same time, it opens up the possibility for the Pharisees that are there to receive the message that Jesus is bringing. He's going to speak in really harsh terms, but he's doing it out of love because he wants them to hear exactly what he's trying to communicate to, to them. He wants them especially to be healed of the hypocrisy. And if you were here over the last few weeks, you know as we've worked through Luke chapter 12, that Luke chapter 12 and verse 1 starts out with Jesus saying, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. He says it just takes over their life and it's infected them. He's going to address that very issue this morning. So I'm going to invite you to go to Luke chapter 14. We'll start out in verse 1. Understand this going into this story. According to the standards of the first century, a ruling Pharisee would only invite to dinner those who would advance his status in the community, those who could move his career up the ladder, those who could give him better standing. So as a result, the dinner table that you're about to read about, it's it's occupied by others who are of equal status or even greater status because he wants to advance his career. So you find Jesus at a dinner with the elite of the elite. He's in the world of the Pharisees and the lawyers. And in their world, the invitation list is only given out to the A-listers, those who are politically connected, those who are powerful, those who are financially well-endowed, they're culturally relevant. That's who they want at their table. So we have to ask ourselves coming into verse 1, what's Jesus doing there? Why is He present? Because the message of salvation, according to Luke chapter 4, is I've come to bring good news to the poor. Why is he in the setting of the elite of the elite? And to add to that, Jesus is constantly in conflict with the Pharisees. They don't get along. Why would they be sitting across the table from each other? Well, at this particular time, it's only months until Jesus' death, and he's making his way to Jerusalem moving around the Sea of Galilee, and apparently in one of the towns he stopped in, he's been invited to dinner, and verse 1 starts this way. One Sabbath, when he, went out to, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. Now, at this particular stage, the Pharisees really don't like Jesus, and they're looking for ways to kill him. And that we find him eating in the home of a Pharisee puts him right in the lair of treachery. In the very place where they're hunting for him. And we're told in verse 1, they're watching him. If you've already looked at your notes, you'll see the same word that's in your notes. It's going to be up on the screen. It's talking about how they're lurkingly looking at him. This word is paratero, and it means to inspect, to watch him to such a degree that they're doing it scrupulously. 
So they're not just watching him like, how does Jesus behave? But rather, they want to know the details. And the word ruler that's used here, second Greek word, there's four of them in your notes this morning. The, the second one this here is archon. And it means this guy is the ruler. He's the first in rank. We don't know his exact standing. He might be part of the Sanhedrin. He could be part of the Supreme Court. He's clearly a magistrate. And so he's a Pharisee over the other Pharisees like Paul was. So this guy's a, a member of the ruling class. We don't know his exact standing, but what we do know is they love their dinner parties to a degree that for them, this is the time to reaffirm themselves in society. It's a good old boys club where they can pat each other on the back about their position. And the setting is Shabbat. They've all been to a Sabbath service. Like you've come to church this morning, they would go to a service and someone would teach them, and they would sing a few songs of praise to God and then make their way to some banquet hall, in this case, the ruler of the Pharisees. And we ask again, what is Jesus doing in this setting? Well, it's very clear, especially after the events of chapter 11, that there's entrapment going on, that they're trying to set Him up. Because of the friction between the Pharisees and Jesus, it appears that they have him here, not just to watch him, but to catch him in something. Let me show you an example from chapter 11, verse 53, in which Jesus and the Pharisees were engaged in heated debate. You'll see this on the screen. When he left there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to be very hostile and to question him closely on many subjects plotting against him to catch him in something he might say. Now, given that this dinner party is the, uh, the gathering of the social elite, Jesus does seem out of place, but his presence there is a really important element of this particular parable. Understand, this is a world in which social status is of primary focus. Who you are in the community determined who you would be economically. Status was based on honor, and prestige drove status, and status in turn drove economics. The things were all linked together. So, for example, where you sat at a meal was a public announcement of your status. And as a consequence, who the invitations were sent out to was extremely examined to the degree of this person would be, and this per no, this person doesn't get along with this person. We don't want this person. They can't be together, so they're very careful. And upon arriving at a dinner, many claimed the most honorable seat. There would actually be a scramble for the seats in hoping that that seat that they claimed might be granted. And thereby, they would gain greater status in the community because people would see them sitting nearer the host. So because these meals were used to announce social status, the invitations were really carefully considered, and they would only bring in those who were on their inner circle. Uh, add to that this other issue. Central to everyday life in this world was the ethics of reciprocity. And by that, I mean, you scratch my back, I scratch yours. There were not gifts given freely. Unless your family member or a very, very close personal friend gave you a gift, when gifts were given, there were always strings attached. 
And that's why you find the writers of the New Testament going out of their way to say, this gift of Jesus Christ, it's the free gift of God, meaning there's no strings attached because that's the world they live in, the world of reciprocity. Dr. J.B. Green spoke to this issue in 1997. I'll let you see an excerpt from his book. He quoted it this way. Expectations of reciprocity were extended to the table. To accept an invitation was to obligate oneself to extend a comparable one, a practice that circumscribed the list of those to whom one might extend an invitation. What he's essentially saying there is the poor wouldn't get invited because the poor couldn't reciprocate the invitation. And if they were invited to the dinner or the banquet, they'd have to turn it down by protocols of the day just because they wouldn't be able to put on a banquet of equal value. And so they would be embarrassed. So Jesus is all about reconstructing our worldview, though, and that's exactly what you're going to see. Go on now. Go with me to verse 2. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. Now, as puzzling as Jesus' presence at this meal is, that this individual who has a disease there, that's even more baffling. By first century standards in the Jewish world, his very presence at a Sabbath dinner contaminates the ritual purity of this meal. Now, I, I had to do a little research on this issue of dropsy and not having a medical background. One of our uh, elders here is a dark doctor of cardiology, Peter Yu. So I got a hold of Peter and asked him about dropsy from the biblical medical definition. And um, what I've learned doing research is, is this is the equivalent of uh, edema. And when I said it in the first service, people thought I said a demon, uh, edema, E-D-E-M-A. It's an issue of putting on water, putting on fluid. Here's the Greek word that goes along with it, hydropikos. And when you look at this particular word, you understand hydropikos is talking about something watery. Do you have that word to put it up on the screen? There you go. I want you to look at the first part of the word, hydro. We get that. Hydropikos, the first part, the compound is hydro, meaning water. So you've got a watery issue. So we have an individual who's coming into Jesus' presence who has an issue with retaining fluids to the degree that it's actually seen as a disease here. But that's not the disease. What I've come to understand is it's a symptom of a much more serious issue. Perhaps kidney failure, perhaps liver failure. In some cases, it's associated with congestive heart failure. So we have a person who's very swollen from a biomedical standpoint, it can indicate a malfunction of the major organs of the body. But from the New Testament legalist view, from the eyes of the Pharisees, who are the elite of the elite, someone with this condition, they're seen as a vile sinner, someone who's under the judgment of God. According to Leviticus 13, they look at that and they think this person is receiving this disease because of something they've done in their life. And typically, they're seen as immoral or as wicked. And the diseased were typically relegated off to the same world of those who were ostracized because they didn't have any money, because they were poor, those who were indigent. And <laughs> I knew I'd get that word wrong, forget it. They just didn't have any money. And this is definitely not someone you're going to find the elite inviting to dinner unless, unless there's a purpose. 
So you have to conclude this is a setup. It's pretty clear that they drop him in front of Jesus so they can watch him. What's Jesus going to do? How's he going to respond to this setting? They know about his reputation. And therein lies the hypocrisy of chapter 12, verse 1, when Jesus said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Let's invite Jesus to dinner. Let's have him come to the banquet. We'll bring him and we'll set it up so that he heals a man so they can accuse him of breaking the law. These are supposed to be the shepherds of Israel. This is stunning. Clearly, the home of the socially elite is not typically the place where you're going to find the sick and the poor in the vicinity of a banquet table. But in the New Testament, meal scenes are notorious for Jesus healing those who are down and out, for the inclusion of the wrong kind of people. Healing someone with dropsy, someone with edema, it's the ultimate picture of bringing good news to the poor. So he's putting it on display. So you have a dining room, and the dining room has all the scenes of hospitality on display. And in this particular setting, it's the Middle East, and hospitality rises to the highest possible level. And remember the very first thing that Dr. Luke told us in chapter 14, verse 1? He said, this was Shabbat. This is a Sabbath day. Now, it's very important that you understand that Sabbath behavior, it absolutely was considered an identity marker for your faithfulness to God. How you behaved on Shabbat, appropriate behavior and appropriate conduct, was meticulously enforced through sanctions. And if you didn't behave according to the rules, you were ostracized. The next day rolls around and people won't shop at your shop. People won't sell you meat until you repent for the behavior that you demonstrated on Shabbat. So Sabbath day was considered something you had to be very careful about. And the tension is raised even further because Jesus has this habit of healing on Shabbat to the dismay of those who really despise him. Now, one more detail before you go to verse 3. One basic rule of Sabbath is that it was a really bad thing to get sick on Sabbath because you couldn't have medical care unless you were on your deathbed. Meaning, don't dial 911 unless you're about to keel over. Because to be doctored or receive medical attention in any way on Sabbath, that's a big no-no. Go with me to verse 3. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Now, I think on a personal level, Dr. Luke has to be absolutely fascinated with what's going on here. To be able to heal someone just by the spoken word, I think it's captivating Dr. Luke to tell this story. That's on one level, but on a bigger picture level, now he's letting us know that the tension level is raised again because we've just found out that the lawyers are also present at the table. And the lawyers are the scribes. So wherever you find the Pharisees, you typically find the scribes because the scribes are those who interpret the law, the lawyers who interpret the law of God and apply it to the people. So we've got really high tension here, and Jesus asked this question in verse 3. Just bear down on this. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath 
or not, but they remain silent, verse 4 tells us. Luke writes, they have no answer. Why? I'm just going to speculate with you for a moment. I believe the setup is done in such a way that they don't want to interrupt Jesus. They want him to heal on the Sabbath. And if they make a case, don't do it, Jesus. It's the Sabbath. He may, in their mind, listen to them. And then they wouldn't have the opportunity to trap him. And they'd, they'd lose the opportunity to bring accusation. Like, how twisted can you get? So Jesus asked this question, and here's his query. And it's a reflection of the common thinking of the first century. Is it lawful to heal? Now, they've seen dropsy before. They know what it is in their world. It's not immediately life-threatening. You don't have to call 911. It's a symptom of something else going on, but the guy's not about to fall over. So, is it justification for putting Sabbath law on hold and revoking the command that you must rest? Jesus asked the question, and he already knows their answer. Their interpretation is, it's not lawful. And you find an insight into their response in chapter 13. You read that later today. and Just back up a few verses. I'll put up on the screen the point that I wanted you to see. It comes from chapter 13, verse 14. Here's the background. Jesus has stepped into another synagogue setting on Sabbath. And there's a woman who's completely bent over, and she's elderly, and she can't stand up because something is wrong with her spine. And he heals her. Watch the response of the Pharisee in the synagogue, though. Verse 14, the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six, can you get this through your head? This is just stunning to me. There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. Like, how cold can you be? That's the mindset, though. Why are they so upset? And why are they trying to trap Jesus? Why tell people to come back on a work day to be healed and not on Sabbath? Well, you need to understand something about the Pharisees. So here's just a glimpse about the background of the Pharisees. They became really prominent during the intertestamental period, meaning between the Old Testament and the New Testament. About 160 B.C., a group of individuals gathered, and they started out with really good intentions that they would protect the nation of Israel because Rome has come into their scene, into their world, and Greek mythology has creeped in. And along with that, the paganism and all the Greek way of thinking and Greek lifestyle, and they see it seeping into Israel. And so this group of individuals starts out with really good intentions. The word Pharisee actually means separatist. Those who wanted to separate themselves, who start out with really good intentions, and here's what their desire is. Around 160 B.C., they desire that they would remove themselves from the world and the world's attractions and return to the purity of Old Testament Judaism. But because Rome has moved in and Greek culture is taking over and is seeping into Israel, they decide to begin a restoration movement. And the Pharisees are really good people, and they start out at grassroots, middle-class individuals. They're not wealthy like the Sadducees. 
They're just working individuals, blue-collar individuals who want people to obey the Word of God. And as society is moving more and more toward worldliness, the Pharisees begin by leading Israel to be faithful to Scripture, and they want to help them. And so they begin writing rules and regulations. So you have a governing body of individuals who are in power, and they begin writing more laws and more laws in order to reinforce the laws that are already on the books. Who would do that? Can you imagine a world in which a Congress decides to take the laws that are already there and then add laws to it? Like, what would it be like to live in that kind of society? It's as old as time. The Pharisees did what we do today. Well, they didn't quite get it on that law, so we're going to add another law on top of it and another law on top of that. And they put up really big fences, but they did it for good reasons. They were worrying that someone might possibly break the laws of God, and so they made more laws. And whenever they ask questions of people and when they ask questions of Jesus, they're, they're constantly doing it as doctrinal in nature because they're so focused on the Word of God. To the degree that when Jesus actually denounces them in Matthew 23, and in Matthew 23, if you haven't read it before, He really begins railing on them. And He begins saying, the scribes and the Pharisees, they have set themselves in the seat of Moses, meaning, move aside, Moses, we're going to tell you people how to really do it. That's how far out of warp this becomes by the first century. But I want you to hear this very clearly because it's highly applicable to us today. The Pharisees were really good people. They'd be in church. They'd be sitting with you. They knew the world of God. They knew the laws of God. They wanted people to live in a really moral way. So they were fastidious about God's law, hyper-religious, well-intentioned, but when the Son of God comes into conflict with them, they don't know what to do with it. And He comes into conflict with them over and over. And He tells them the system that they're following is not of God. Now, just imagine being in a social setting where you come to an individual and you say to them, even though you're really good, even though you know God's Word, you're going to hell. Just try that this week. You get in a group of really good people, really good moral individuals, and you begin seeing why this is applicable to our day in terms of our culture, because today the assumption is, by most of society, is it's the good people, quote-unquote good people, who get into heaven, those who are really moral. And if you're good and you're religious, well, you've got a lock on heaven. You're going. You hear it at funerals all the time. But Jesus says, not so. You think it's about your righteousness? Not so. You think it's about what you achieved, your status? Not so. So logically, they see the gospel as an attack. And that's why you see in the New Testament, Paul as Saul breathing out threats against the Christians, wanting to throw them into prison. Because this becomes very visceral. If you see yourself as the protector of truth, and along comes someone who says that the truth you're following isn't truth, what are you going to do? 
Well, in the case of these individuals in this story, when you come to verse 4, you find they remain silent because they want to catch this guy. Look with me on the screen again at verse 4. But they remain silent. Then he, meaning Jesus, took him, meaning the guy with edema, and healed him and sent him away. That verb that's being used there, take hold of, he he seizes him, epilembanomai, it's in your notes this morning, big $10 word, but here's what it means. It means literally to grab someone. You find it used in Acts chapter 19 when Paul and Silas are being seized and dragged off to jail. Jesus has a lock on this individual. It's a very strong word, and this is the way I'm picturing it. Jesus literally taking a hold and squeezing this individual grabbing him, seizing him, this one who's got sick organs in his body, and giving him whatever he needs. And Jesus does it without any hesitation whatsoever. I think we could confidently say he does it forcefully. And instead of keeping his distance from this one who's got a disease, he grabs the man, squeezes him, and gives him, I don't know, new organs? We'll have to check with Jesus one day on that. What kind of healing is this? And then Luke writes that little detail, he sends him away. And if you read it between the lines, what you're seeing is he sends him away because the guy wasn't invited to dinner. He wouldn't send him away if he was an invited dinner guest. The guy was there without the invitation. Gives you further insight into the heart of what's going on here. In that moment, the Pharisees have exactly what they want, they think. Go with me to verse 5. And he said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? Verse 6, watch the wording. And they could not reply to these things. Earlier they would not. Now they cannot. This is a remarkable picture that Jesus is painting here. He's talking about the drowning of a child, a drowning of your son. And here we have an individual who's been drowning in his own fluid. His body's retaining fluid to the degree that Jesus has to heal him. He's painting a beautiful picture here of what he's done in terms of water. He's saying, you would do the same for a son of yours, wouldn't you? Or or even an ox that's fallen in the well. The the wells at that period of time didn't have big high walls like you might picture. Some of the walls were quite low and the wells were big enough that somebody bending over to get water could easily fall in and it happened on a regular basis. Animals tripped and fell into wells and they would fall into ditches that were filled with water. So there's actually laws on the books about helping your ox out of the ditch. See, they cannot reply because no one can object to Jesus' reasoning, and he heals a man right in front of their eyes and then says, if, if you had a child drowning, would you not rescue him even though it's the Sabbath? Would you let him drown? Or if your ox slipped into a ditch? I used to use this line with my family all the time when I had to go out and do things that you know, it would catch us by surprise. It would interrupt our family plans. And one of my kids would say, Dad, where are you going? And I'd say, well, my ox is in the ditch. Feel free to use that phrase. It doesn't belong to me. It's in the Bible. You get a situation where you have to respond. 
Your ox has fallen in the ditch. Your son has fallen in the well. You've got to do something. Those are the details, but here's what's going on. He's unmasking them. He's taking the mask off their face because they're so hypocritical. Verse 7, now he breaks into the parable. You've got all the setup. Here's the very short parable that goes with it. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, here's the parable. When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. Luke's description is almost comical. I actually think it is kind of funny. They've attempted to unmask Jesus to show that he's a breaker of the law, and yet they've been reduced to this place of complete silence themselves. You know the scene he's describing here. If you've ever watched the Golden Globe Awards or maybe the Academy Awards, many Americans don't watch that show anymore, those shows, but maybe think back to a time when you did. The Golden Globes especially, because there were banquet tables always set up in the auditorium, and those who were the A-listers always were seated in the very front seats nearest the stage. And and for the Academy Awards, the exact same thing. All those who would receive the awards, all the A-listers, all the best of the best, they get the front seats. We understand that in our world. You go to the Wharton Center, and in, in these cases, you pay for the seats, but when you go there, the seats start up by the orchestra area, A, B, C, D. And if you really want to pay the money, you get AA, BB, CC. Those are the ones that are nearest the orchestra pit. Or if you've been on a jet airplane, you understand that sometimes when you walk on the plane, you have to turn to the right when all the first class people are turning to the left and going up front. And you have to sit with a common and unwashed in the back, right? You identify with that? Well, those are seats we pay for. But we get it. We understand what he's giving here. It's a cultural norm. Some individuals are seeking places of honor. It's typical behavior. But Jesus goes further in verse 10 with his parable. Watch. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher, then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. And here's where it turns spiritual for them. Verse 11, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And I've been asking you through the course of this, what is Jesus doing here? The very act of eating with the Pharisees conveys something to you and I today. We're removed from this 2,000 years And yet we're reading what Dr. Luke recorded that Jesus wanted us to get. What's he conveying here? He's conveying the potential for redemption. Jesus is incredibly persistent. If he's nothing else, he's incredibly persistent about the message. And his message is told over and over and over again. As we talked about last week, why give a warning if there isn't a way out? He's giving a warning here. He's giving them an opportunity to repent, even to the Pharisees, even to those people whom you might say are his arch enemies, those who want to trap him. He's willing to be that bold in a social circle setting and say the hard things. 
even if it makes people squeamish. What you watch him doing here is extending an opportunity, but in order to do so, the Pharisees have to be in this place where they're willing to reorient their life around God's value, and Jesus surfaces the issue in the healing of a person with dropsy. He uses the opportunity to say, don't rush to the chief seats. I I don't know if uh, musical chairs are still performed in school today. I remember when I was in kindergarten, we played musical chairs in first grade. After the nine o'clock service, a little five-year-old girl came up to me and said, we do it in my school. Do you remember in musical chairs, if you participated in that, the teacher would play music and, and then remove a chair and everybody would dive and scramble for the chair that remained. Jesus is saying, don't play musical chairs and then find out that somebody else is going to show up who's more important than you and more distinguished, and then you find yourself being told, go to the back of the line. You don't want to do that. You'd be humiliated. What he's describing to them is scandalous. Remember, he's living in a culture of shame, honor, society. He's dealing with the reality of these people who are living in this world, and he's toppling their familiar world. This is the setting. Typically, at a banquet, the table was U-shaped. At the very head of the table is where the host who put together the banquet was sitting. All the table seats as they spread out in a very long fashion moved away from the host. And so those who were lowest in ranking, who didn't get the best invitation, those individuals were way out at the back of the table. But there were no placards on the table. There were no signs indicating who would sit where. The places of honor were not marked. It was determined by the host when the host arrived. But the nearer that you were to the host, the more honor you had, and honor's a really big deal with them. And Jesus said, these guys, they do all their deeds to be honored by men. That's in Matthew 23. Watch where Jesus goes in Matthew 23, verse 5. He speaks to this banquet issue. Matthew 23, 5, they love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues. And because they love that, they play musical chairs. There's typically a scramble, rushing for the very best seats because they love the chief seat. And because honor is socially determined by your peers If your social circle fails to give you that honor, you're publicly humiliated and shamed. Jesus is talking about humbling yourself. The very thought of humbling yourself to people living in the first century was anathema. The thought of a humble person was a person who was base, who was poor, who was the lowest of the low. Who would want to be that? And yet that's the message of the gospel. The person who recognized they don't bring anything to the table. Culture says, you must have the honor of others. Don't let culture cancel you. Let culture endorse you. But God says, the only approval that you need is in the eyes of God. The God who's unimpressed with social status. Say amen if you agree with this. God is the one who looks for humble hearts. That's what Scripture affirms. 
Let me speak to that real quickly with just two verses. Look with me at Proverbs 16, 5. Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord, and it will not be unpunished. Or just this quick example. When Mary was told that as the lowest of the low, she was going to birth the child, the Son of God, that she would give birth to Jesus, she breaks out into what we call the Magnificat. It comes from Luke chapter 1. And here's just an excerpt from that. Here's Mary speaking in Luke chapter 1, verse 51. He's done mighty deeds with his arm. He's scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their hearts and has brought down rulers from their thrones, and watch this, and exalted those who were humble and filled the hungry with good things. So Jesus is pulling the mask off their face. And he's allowing them to see that if they can only see the truth of who they are and repent from that, from that arrogance, they can come to the kingdom. They can enter the kingdom of God, but they have to humble themselves. And so here's what Jesus is driving at. He says the kingdom is really all about knowing that you're unworthy, that you're no better than anyone else. Regardless of what you think in your mind, the kingdom belongs to those who humble themselves. How else can you receive the cross of Jesus, the humility of Christ? So he's extending mercy to the elite of the elite because they think they're the best of the best. And he's telling them pride's going to shut you out of the kingdom because pride says this to you. Pride says, I'm good, thanks. I got this. Jesus says, no, you don't. The gospel says, I'm not good. I deserve death. So here's the application for us, church. And you probably know individuals in your life who have a false understanding of this issue. The Bible's very clear. No one is going to enter the kingdom of God by good works. No one's going to enter by self-righteousness. No one's going to enter by their social status and certainly not by self-promotion. Struggle is that thought, that way of thinking is totally contrary to human nature because human nature says, I can earn my way. And that's why the gospel is so scandalous. But it's crystal clear in the Bible. I'm going to end this by asking you to join me by completing a Bible verse. And I bet many of you, if you were raised in church, you'll know this. And if you're new to church, just hear this verse out. It says in James 4, 6, that God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the, to the humble, right? You know that. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He's talking about humble of heart. It's the person who gets to the place that says, I know this, I, I, I am a sinner and I need a savior. That's not a proud heart. That's a person who's bankrupt in their spirit saying, I can't fix this. So I, I would close right now praying with you that individuals whom you interact with and perhaps it's you yourself, maybe this is new information to you, that God would give favor that you would either speak clearly into those individuals' lives, or if that's you this morning, that you will have heard this in a way that the Holy Spirit has spoken to your heart. And, and you can say, I, I want that. I, I want what I'm seeing this morning. I want what Jesus is offering. 
Let's pray together, church. Father, I pray first and foremost for individuals who who not only might be new to church, maybe this is new information, that what you offer is a forgiveness of our sins if we're willing to ask for it. And there's humility in that. That we come to the one who was willing to humble himself, the King of Kings who became the humblest in order to die for us. So, Father, I pray that for any individual, whether being in person in the auditorium or being part of this from their home, that might be moved by the power of the Holy Spirit right now, God, that you would give them the courage to respond and ask you for this gift because we want to be at the kingdom table. We want to be with you in eternity. We don't want to be shut out. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters in this auditorium right now and those who are watching online that we would in turn be bold enough with this information that we're willing to say the hard things even when it makes other people uncomfortable because of the love, because we're invested. I pray for that. I pray for the boldness that comes from the power of the Holy Spirit and I ask for that in the name of Jesus Christ, our soon coming King and all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.